Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. And here we are. This is The Interpreter Radio Show, which happens each Sunday evening right here on KTalk Media from 7 until 9 p.m. The Interpreter Radio Show is sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, and that foundation is involved in scholarship and defending the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Tonight, we're going to do for our first segment, a Come Follow Me, which is about continuation of the Sermon on the Mount started last week in the Come Follow Me. This week it's Matthew 6 and 7, which is the continuation. After that, we'll talk for a little bit about, uh, during the remainder of our first hour, the New Testament and some information about where it came from and uh, details about how it was compiled and the constraints on that and some of the different things that might help it be a little bit more understandable. Some good background information might be the succinct way to say it. And then next hour, we have what I think will be a real treat, and that is we have uh, John Key coming in to talk with us. Tonight, Terry Hutchison in studio. I'm Martin Tanner, and it's a pleasure to be here with you, Terry. Well, thank you, Martin. I'm happy to be here. I'm with you every fifth Sunday now, and I really look forward to it, so I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you for, for being here, and I, I enjoy it as as well this this is something that um uh you know is kind of the odd man out in terms of the schedule you know the fifth sunday so thank thank you for being willing to to, to fill in and help this out and turn it into uh, uh a good fifth sunday which i think well it is. you know i i always enjoy being on the radio um i've been a guest on a couple of political programs one in particular in st george and i remember one of the People commenting on her Facebook post said, he never even let you talk. Well, that's the <laughs> danger if you have me on your program. <laughs> well, But in this case, you know, you and I are – we're more the radio guys for the team that we have for co-hosts. Yeah. And uh, so this will be a case of blind leading the blind maybe. Yeah, we'll, But uh, we'll get through it, and um, it's exciting, and, and I enjoy it. And I really do appreciate the Interpreter Foundation. It, it, I've been – you know, volunteering here with you guys for four years now, and uh, it's a highlight for me every month. And I look forward to the weekly articles and just all of the things that Interpreter does. And if you haven't subscribed, I just encourage you to go to the website, just subscribe. You'll get a little email, maybe two, in your email every week. Uh, you're not bombarded with a lot of financial requests or anything else. And, uh, you know, you may not read everything that comes. I don't know that anybody could, but on the other hand, there are some phenomenally interesting things that come every week, but uh, we'll talk about that a little more at the end of the program, but uh, right now we can dive into our Come Follow Me segment, which is a continuation of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Right, and before we do that, I wanted to mention that next hour we have John Key coming, and you've kind of set this up, and, and I think this is going to be really fun because one of my favorite topics is Book of Abraham, 
And right now, and you and I were talking about this before the show, that if you were going to pick from the top five or ten problems that hit young people and, and they have concerns about the church, Book of Abraham is right up there. And I just get livid with some of the things that are said out there that are not true about the Book of Abraham. And if you're listening and you know somebody like that, our guest, our third person coming in during the next hour is John Gee, Egyptologist, PhD Egyptologist from Yale, the best of the best of the best about the Book of Abraham, and he's written We many, actually many have things. a great team here on Interpreter between John and Stephen Smoot, who's uh, one of the co-hosts for the first week, and uh, Carrie Muehlstein comes on occasionally. Yep. And then, of course, you know we have uh, Jeff Lindsay, who's uh, involved with Interpreter, yep. and he's a— He's dived deeply into this. You know, uh, I would take exception to what you said, but we'll cover that in the next hour because a, a little bit about, you know, some of the concerns that the young people have. My experience in counseling is a little bit different. But yeah. once I, you know, and John and I were discussing that yeah. uh, as we were well, coming Well, I, so. I could I, – I don't want to list which is the worst no. and which isn't. I'm just saying that, that this is one it's of the big ones, one. and yeah. I've seen many, many emails from listeners over the last 20 or 30 years yeah. about Yeah, and I think kids. there's some reasons for that we could get into. But in the, in the meantime, you know, sure. I, I love diving into the scriptures. So you know, this week, uh, Martin, I, I've really been getting into the television program, The Chosen. Um, I think a lot of our listeners are. Maybe they're not. Yeah. I will just say, if you haven't, I would say get through the first four episodes because a lot of it is, oh my gosh, it's fictionalized. What do I do? And everything. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch those, which I really had a hard time. We had Janae and I had to start it two or three times, mm-hmm. but once we hit the fourth episode, when he actually called, you know, his disciples and called Peter, they they had the miracle with the fish. I was all in. It, it is. It's it, great. The, it, so the movie's going to be this week. Oh, is it? It's, yeah. It's the movie. Okay. So, so the last two episodes of this season three is going to be in theaters this weekend just for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And then I think Sunday will be a new episode. And then the following Sunday yeah. will be the last. Oh, no, no. The seventh. Wednesday, so it'll be the fifth and the seventh, whatever days those are. I think it's Sunday and Tuesday. Well, go see it. It's it's yeah. fictionalized history, as you mm-hmm. say. But the thing that, at least for me, that makes it worthwhile is that even though most of the dialogue is, is made up, it's made up in the sense that it really fits the context and it yes. draws you in. And so it's plausible. It's not like, where did this come from? It's, oh, that could make sense. And it sort of, whoever thought, the dialogue up draws out the nuances of the teachings and the dilemmas and the context of, of the storyline. It's well, very it's good. Well, it's set in, in early Judaism, ancient Judaism. And so there's, you know, and I'm sure, you know, someone who's more knowledgeable than I am would be able to, you know, have a lot of, have a lot to do with that. But it's like, um, I, 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 Love the fact that every time any of them takes a f- their food, they have a prayer. And it's the same prayer, which is fine. Um, and then, you know, they do follow the scriptures. And so I think the word that you get is plausible. It's not cheesy or anything else. And so exactly. I'm excited yeah. about that because yeah. this season started 
with the Sermon on the Mount. So they, they did the first two episodes in the theater, and then they put them on TV for free. And the whole thing is available for free. You can go to an app. You can, you can view it in a lot of different ways. But they um, put it in the theater. We went and watched it. And that first episode was the Sermon on the Mount. And you liked that. I I like that. I mean, there are things, uh, there are other parts of the series that I like better. I mean, you know, uh, and so as I'm preparing for tonight, Martin, it was interesting to hear just the slight differences in the language. But part of that, too, is the King James translation. And that's the one I grew up with. That's the one most of us are the most familiar with. And uh, you go to slightly different translations, and I know you're a big proponent of, of. you a few know, of the others, a yeah. few of the others, yeah. and you know I am too, uh, to to a degree, and and surprisingly, Martin, they're different. I like the Revised English Bible a oh, lot. They're, they're and yet very favorite, different. Yeah, your favorite is uh, well, I I like the the contemporary English version a lot. Mm-hmm. I also really like the one that I've pulled out for tonight, which is the Good News Translation. Which, okay, that's the one that yeah, which, which that I you liked. I like so, the New you know, Testament. There's a lot of different things and. We believe the Bible as far as it's been translated correctly. Yeah. So it just is is another way to view it and just uh, become absorbed in the words of the Savior. Yep. And uh, this, so this is a phenomenal opportunity for all of us. So we, we begin by picking up. And I really like the approach taken by Jack Welch. Uh, you know, everybody calls him Jack in the trade. I know him a little bit. I had a class from him. And, uh, you know, we, we've had some contact since, since I graduated from law school. But uh, he wrote a book about 14 years ago called The Sermon on the Mount in the Light of the Temple. Now, this book is based on a book he wrote in the early 90s. I think it was 91 or 1991 called Illuminating the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple. And he took a comparison of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple as contained in Third Nephi, and compared them, and then he he indicated that they were um, they were very similar to temple texts. Well, later on, Margaret Barker became familiar with that work, and when she was the president of the old of the Society for the Study of the Old Testament, she invited him to submit a book aiming solely for the Sermon on the Mount to be uh, tied in with the temple, and that's what he did. And uh, to her credit, she said, and by the way, tell them where this started. This started in a book about the Sermon on the Mount and the Book of Mormon, and you're building on it. So taking that scholarship seriously. But I really like the way that he frames it because uh, in Chapter 6, you know, in Chapter 5, we, we go through the things that they discussed last week. And now we go to this first four verses in chapter 6, which is about almsgiving. And in other words, the Savior says, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. So now there's a long tradition at that time, apparently, of secrecy when you're doing charity. But there were also some limitations. Um, The Jewish law said, okay, don't give any more than 20% to the poor. Now, as a practical matter, Martin, you can see that. 
But on the other hand, that's not what we're taught in the temple. And the temple, we start the law of consecration. So right here at the beginning of chapter 6, uh, according to, to Welch, um, this is a place where we're starting that higher order. So the first, the fifth chapter talks about, you know, it was said of olden times this, but I say unto you this. So he's already saying, we're going to go beyond the law of Moses. We're going to go to the next step. And I like the way this chapter is structured because you start with the almsgiving and then he digresses a little bit to talk about prayer. And he says, listen, if you're going to be a hypocrite about your alms and you're just doing it for the public spectacle, it's just like the people who do that in the prayer. Then you know they pray in the temple and they stand there and they make a big production of it as opposed to somebody who's just off in a corner. And so he spends some time with that. Then he teaches the people how they really should pray and what they really should pray for. And then he goes right back. He talks about forgiveness. And then he goes right back and talks about the hypocrisy of you know, a little later in the chapter, he talks about, um, you know, vain repetitions. Um, he talks about the other things that, that he's going through there. But it's it's a, a real interesting thing. And I like the way that the Come, Follow Me manual summarizes this first four. This first four verses. It says, I want to care more about what God thinks of me than what others think. I got to tell you, as a practical matter, we can talk about, you know, all of the things around and we can take all the scholarship, but it boils down to that's really the way we should live our lives. We should care more about what God thinks of us than what others do. Yeah. Prayer is really at the crux of it between you and God. And if you let it be too much about other people, unless you're involved in a public prayer, beginning a, you know, a public meeting or something, it ought to really be focused on your relationship with God, and, and that's that's what you're saying here. The other thing that is being discussed, you brought up the hip, hypocrisy and hypocrites, and you know, we'll get into this a little bit. Don't, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't do this. Don't do that. And the crux of that is don't be inconsistent. Don't be telling somebody else they're doing something horrible if you're doing the same thing or something even worse. Get yourself right before you worry about other people. And and that's such um, an, an amazing, beautiful thing. You, you hear over and over here, and we'll read it, the very last verse of our discussion here today about when Jesus finishes these teachings, he is – observed by the people to be as someone who has authority. And I've always thought, what does that mean to have authority? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that he has a whole pile of books with him. It certainly doesn't mean that he has three PhDs or something. What does that really mean? It means that his teachings are said with such honest, forthrightness, logic, and precision that they're just irrefutable and and beautiful and and that to me is sort of the crux of Jesus teachings here and this is this is kind of the golden rule and and other than the resurrection which is a huge differentiation between Christianity and and the other religions 
this golden rule and the way to do things and be consistent with yourself and with God and others. This is the crux of the faith. This is it. Well, I noticed that the uh, theme of hypocrisy runs through the Gospels, and a lot of it through Matthew, because, you know, I mean, although, you know, John the Baptist wasn't afraid to speak his mind either, and he was preparing the way, as we know. So it's just... It's it's a constant theme. So he he goes back to it here, and then after he talks about after he talks about the almsgiving and then the prayer, that he he talks about do your almsgiving in private, do your prayers in private, and your father will reward you openly. Then he goes through and teaches them how to pray. Then he goes back, just like you were saying a second ago, get the beam out of your own eye. Take, take care of your own business first before you worry about somebody else's. And then he goes back and talks about fasting. And I, I, I love the idea of the prayer. Of, of, but, but even before, you know, the scriptures always do things in a specific order. And they're very specific. So when we're looking at this chapter, does it mean that our almsgiving is maybe more important than our prayers? I mean, I, 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 I know we're splitting hairs here when we say that. But notice in this chapter, he prioritizes the almsgiving, then the prayers. And to make sure everybody knows what prayer is and how to pray, he teaches them. Then he talks about forgiveness, and then he talks about fasting. All of those things are uh, ceremonial, particularly the prayer and the fasting were ceremonial for the main celebrations, and especially for Yom Kippur, which was the atonement ceremony. He's preparing the people to receive the atonement. And that is how we do that. This is, this is exactly, I think, the steps that we're following if you could have a checklist, which I don't believe you can. I mean, we start with a checklist, but I think we're all somewhere on the path just trying to mark the boxes. And we're doing it imperfectly. Yeah, yeah. We all we all have our own model that we've uh, created with gospel principles. If if we're doing what we can to try to follow the precepts of the church, and I'm sure you could not find any two people who have the same model. If you try to to pull it all out there, we tr- we try to do it for ourselves in the way that makes the most sense. But we're all imperfect. I I, I like your comment about the order of things here, though. You're you're right that teaching about charity pertains to others, and, and then he shifts to prayer, which is focusing on God. And, and then um, fasting is, is the next one, and he, he turns to hypocrisy there, and you, and you might think, well, wait a minute, how can fasting be a hypocritical thing? Be, and I'll, I'll read this one from the Good News Translation, just a couple of verses um, – 16, 17, and 18 says, quote, When you fast, don't put on a sad face or a contorted face as the hypocrites do. They neglect their appearance so that everyone will see they are fasting. I assure you, they have already been paid in full. When you go without food, wash your face, comb your hair. He's saying, look like you always do. Don't be different. So that others can't know you're fasting. Only your Father in heaven will know. Your Father in heaven who sees what you do in private will reward you, close quote. And that, that's, 
That's a beautiful saying. It's being right with God, not trying to show off for others. Well, and, and that, that, that brief sideline to forgiveness also comes from the prayer. Because in the prayer, he specifically says, um, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So, once again, the, the, the teaching is linear. And yet, there are paths to supplement the line, if you will, and to make sure there's an extra emphasis on the things that are the most important. And certainly, prayer is the most important. I mean, we start with charity to others, service of others, everything. But for us to really progress, we've got to pray. We've got to develop that relationship with our Father in heaven. Yeah. And, and it's notice. We pray, and Jesus taught us to pray, to our Father in heaven, which means that when we talk about developing a personal relationship with our Savior, with Jesus Christ, that's a different thing. And I think a lot of times we kind of get uh, mixed up about that. And the brethren have constantly over the years, I can remember one instance in BYU in particular when I was there, that one of the apostles made that very plain. We pray to the Father. Very, It's very rare in the scriptures that anybody prays directly to the Savior. And when they do, it's because they're moved on by the Spirit to do it. And the one I'm thinking of in particular is during the Book of Mormon, when the disciples, the 12 Nephite disciples, all of a sudden start praying directly to Jesus. But it shifts. They start the prayer to the Father, and then this, with, under the influence of the Spirit, they shift. So we're, we're taught to pray, we're taught to forgive, and that special emphasis of the whole thing in that is that, that, that whole portion of this lesson is forgive. Because Jesus goes out of his way to talk about you have to forgive, and so when you're going to do something, take care of your own self and forgive everybody and just go on. And that can be challenging. I, I think that it's fairly be interesting because President Nelson has been emphasizing that for the last couple of years for all of us to, to you know, as we hear him, as we stay on the covenant path, all the things that President Nelson has said, it still boils down to he recognizes we all have some issues where we need to work on this and to try and do better. And not just try and do better, but to actually do better. And he's been challenging us to do that. One comment I wanted to make about Jesus telling people how to pray. It, it seems to flow, and most people understand it logically, till you get to verse 13. Lead us not into temptation. And if you think about that carefully, you, you say to yourself, wait a minute. God leads us into temptation. God tempts us. God, what? That that doesn't sound good because tempting sounds like an enticement to evil. But if you look at the underlying words here and what's really being said, uh, a different way to say that, and, and here again, this is why I brought the Good News Translation, a more palatable way in English to say it might be, don't test us too much. Please don't test us beyond what we can, what we can bear and keep us safe 
from evil, from the from the temptations of the devil. And that sort of fits in with there must needs be opposition in all things. But here Jesus is is kind of saying, but it's okay to pray, but don't give us too much opposition <laughs> in all things, you know. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of what's being said here and that that makes it a little more understandable than well God, if you don't pray, God's going to really tempt you to do something awful. That might yeah. help a little bit in teaching it. So I got a I got this, and I've talked about this on the program before, this comparative handbook to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, uh, edited by a, a lot of you know, experts, and they, they compare the Gospels and a new translation of the Gospels with um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the rabbinical writings of the time, uh, you know, various other documents and, and other evidences from that period of time. And you're exactly right. The translation here for that is, um, do, and do not bring us to the test, but deliver us from the evil one. Yeah. You know, you and that's, 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 that's it. Context. And there's, yep. you know, and, and there's, there's longstanding tradition that that is the way to pray. There's the, the, you know, you have uh, the book of Enoch, which talks about how God will come forth from his dwelling and he'll appear and emerge, you know, and people from fear and trembling, He'll preserve the elect and show kindness to them, and all you know. There, there's just a, a lot of different things. There's a, a whole section here about prayer, uh, where they talk about don't be public, don't be sanctimonious, don't be uh, a person who is a hypocrite, and and once again, that's that theme that we keep going back to, which is the hypocritical nature. Um, I, I really like, once again, what the manual does. It kind of simplifies this. When I pray, I want to treat Heavenly Father's name with reverence. When I pray, I can express my desire that the Lord's will will be done. And that gets us to things we've talked about on the program and various conference talks, the vending machine theory, if you will. We, we put our money in, we pay our dues, we obey the commandments, and we expect a certain package to come out of those blessings. Now, there is a law irrevocably decreed where those blessings are attached to the commandment. No doubt about it. But it doesn't say that they have to be in the package in the size, shape, and timing that we expect. That is absolutely right. And we know that we will all have trials in life. The question is, how do we deal with them? And uh, we we shouldn't have too many preconceptions because we're not going to get that perfect box, like you said, the way we... <laughs> expect it. <clears throat> and even in the vending machine, I've had many things that came out very differently than the way I had expected. So that's that's a good analogy. Um, riches in heaven, verse 19, 20, 21. This is a, a placement of priorities discussion here, or, or admonition. Don't lay up your stores on earth. Don't focus on earthly things where things can be destroyed. Moths can destroy, rust destroys, robbers destroy things. Don't do it. Put your, put your emphasis on heavenly things. That's, that's such a fascinating thing. And, and yet, 
as you were talking about earlier with with balance, the very first thing that Jesus is is discussing is how to help people. So we're supposed to help people and focus on the earth, but in good specific ways, ways that serve others, ways that help others, not in ways that are selfish. I've always seen this as not necessarily an admonition to not focus on helping others in earth life, but on a focus of don't be selfish and amass all kinds of money and fortune and things that that are not used to help others. You know, I like I said I was I was looking at this that ties in of course with the temple with the law of consecration. Okay? That also ties in with um a lot of the other writings of that time, the book of first Enoch. Uh, chapter 108, verse 8. Those who love God have loved neither gold nor silver nor all the good things which are in the world, but have given over their bodies to suffering. Um, the community rule talks about how, uh, you know, there's a renewal and a special day for the Holy of Holies. Um, other writings at that time. In other words, trust in wealth is condemned. But it was taught if you're doing good deeds, one accumulates heavenly treasures. But once again, the size, timing, and shape of the package is going to be at the discretion of God. So, but that, you know, certainly that's where our emphasis is. And that's another main theme. Remember, later on in Jesus' life, he meets the rich young ruler, the rich young man. Says, yes. give everything you have. He didn't say that to everybody, but he said it to that young man as an individual. And the young man went away sorrowing, for he had much. Yeah. Now, maybe he ultimately did it, maybe not. We don't know. I mean, certainly the scripture gives you the impression that he didn't, he didn't follow up with that. But once again, those are all tied in with covenants that we make with our Father in heaven, and a lot of them are temple-oriented when we look for it. Yes, and, and let's, let's see if we can wrap up chapter 6 here. The, the last verses here in chapter 6, from 24 to the end, talk about um, the same theme that, that you're discussing. You can't have two masters. You can't serve God. You can't serve money. It's got to be one, one or the other. And then he goes on in verse 25 and Jesus tells people, don't be worried. And he says it in a fascinating way that in some ways doesn't even seem relevant to many Latter-day Saints because he says, don't worry about food and drink that you need to stay alive and clothes that you need to wear because... That's, that's not important. There's more to life than that. Well, I don't know how many Latter-day Saints are excessively worried about having enough food. There aren't too many Latter-day Saints, if you have a bishop, that are starving to death. But having said that, the underlying message here for us today, as it was for the listeners back then, is don't excessively worry about life. It doesn't mean don't have a plan. You know, you can have a day planner. You can try to plan things out. You can, 
it, it's there are places here where, where it's translated as take no thought for the morrow. Don't care a bit about tomorrow. Well, I care about tomorrow. I've got a day planner, and if I don't care about it, I'm in real trouble. But the point here is don't excessively worry. Don't worry about things that won't help because it's a waste of time. Worry about things that are important. One of the best definitions of sin I ever heard was from Hugh Nibley, and he said, ultimately, all sin is a sin and bad because it's a waste. Something better could have been done. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting way to boil it down to the essence. And if you're wasting time thinking about things in the future or things that don't need your focus, it's it's a waste. And that's the gist of what Jesus is saying here. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing is at that time, the I was thought to correlate to your character. I mean, if if you recall at the time of Joseph Smith, your bowels, if they swelled with mercy, had it was more of an emotional thing as opposed to a technical thing like we, we do now. But the eye was thought to correlate to one's character, and it's used in reference to what you notice or what comes to your attention. So once again, if your eye is single to the glory of God, you're gonna, not going to notice anything that doesn't have to do with him. And you're also not going to be distracted by anything. Um, we recently had a chance to see some of the preparation for a new display that's going on in Thanksgiving Point. Um, they're going to do the Tree of Life. And uh, it'll be in sculptures kind of like the ones of the life of Christ that are up there. And then there's going to be a lot of them. And that idea of the eye and keeping your focus on the Tree of Life, keeping your focus on the iron rod piercing the darkness somehow is you know a big factor and then always anciently you have that theme of the eye you have the theme of seeing and that's another thing that's another blessing that we receive in the temple is we're we're blessed in spiritual ways with regard to being able to see with regard to being able to pick between good and evil and uh those are those are blessings that I always think back to the temple when I when I yeah. think of them. So that rings a bell here as well. Well, that's a wonderful insight. If if you look at the eye, it will tell you what someone focuses on, and the temple has used as one of its great symbols the all-seeing eye of God, and. God seeing all has the ability to um, uh, discern for us, having seen everything, what is most important, and hence in our mm-hmm. prayers we can we can rely on. on but what we he has also to have say. that issue at the end of this chapter of heavenly clothing, and he talks about how you know nature is arrayed in certain ways. And, of course, he will be. But we don a heavenly raiment. When we return to our Father, we don heavenly raiment. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of prophecies and a lot of uh, commentary in scriptures about that. So it's, uh, it's another element in the temple where we dress differently than we do in the world. And it segregates us once again from the world. It's another step, a higher step if you will, that Jesus is giving us here to separate ourselves from the world 
in a, in a very, in not a worldly way either, because, you know, those heavenly robes that we symbolize in the temple, they're all the same. I mean, it's... Yep. Kind of a waste of time for that guy in Southern Cal. I don't remember what cemetery it was to be buried with his Mercedes SL, you know, coupe. That just, just. <laughs> well, he tried to take it with him, <laughs> but it didn't work. That's the point. Well, <laughs> it's it's where he his physical remains are right now, and I guess. And, and we know where his. <laughs> yeah, where he, we know where his eye was. That's right. That's right. All right, Chapter that's Seven: right. Judging Others. I I've really like this and have off, often thought that if you know if we really said this today it would be don't judge others because the way you judge others is exactly the way that God's going to judge you and don't worry about the sliver in somebody else's eye if somebody has jammed a 2 by 4 in your eye you know it, it, this is graphic language he's He's talking in ways that are pretty um, kind of in your face, you know, He and he's using hyperbole to make an emphasis. Um, you know, I, I use the speck and the two-by-four. He's talking about a speck and a log. He's talking, you know, a big chunk of wood. He's saying things that are exaggerations to, to make a point, and it's – this would have been seen, I think, a, a little bit um, – we don't often think of Jesus as, as being funny. But I'll bet there were some smiles of recognition and, and understanding amongst the audience with this when he's talking about, hey, you know, everybody knows that guy who's got something stuck in his eye when he's pointing out – <clears throat> he's got a log stuck in his eye and trying to point out the sliver in somebody else's. I, I think people would have smiled and laughed at that. Or when you're counseling somebody and you've got something in your teeth. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the equivalent, the that, modern equivalent. That right? would be the equivalent, right. You know, but I, I, Joseph Smith, in the Joseph Smith translation, uh, makes a modification on this that I think is pretty important. And it says, judge not unrighteous judgment, judge righteous judgment. What does that mean? Well, to me, we constantly judge, and we should judge. You know, people, people read this passage, and they say, well, I shouldn't be judgmental. I'm, that's that, what that person is doing. Listen, accusing people, confronting people over their behavior and doing that, that, that requires a certain relationship. And, for example, if my kids are doing something, as their parent, I'm going to confront them, okay? But if it's just a stranger on the street, unless it's life-threatening, do I really have – it's not that I don't have the obligation, but I don't know that I have the basis for, for doing that. However, in my own mind, I can look at what someone is doing and say, that's wrong. And I always should be doing that. You should always be doing that. I, this should never be seen as don't ever pass judgment because that's wrong. That You're absolutely right. I, one, one of the best points I ever heard made about this is from a um, uh, Ph.D. psychologist, friend of mine, who's, who's a Latter-day Saint. And, and he said, talking about this idea, that most people – are much harder on themselves than they are on other people. 
they judge themselves much more harshly than others. But there are some certain few <laughs> where, the re- where the reverse is true. Yeah. And God's not too worried about you excessively judging yourself, although it's not a good idea. Um, this is applying to those some certain few who are completely oblivious to the things that they do that are mean, harsh, bad, horrible, evil, rotten, and yet they see it in everybody else. That's the person you really don't want to be. It's it's fine to judge other people. It's not a good idea to be too harsh on yourself, but don't be more harsh on others than you are on yourself. Well, That's again, the no-no here. Once again, that word hypocrite in verse 5, he says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly. So it's that theme running through. And there are other verses in this chapter that tell us how to judge. So once again, the Savior's not just saying, okay, here's your standard. He's telling us what resources we have to make that standard. He says, pray. Don't pray. Pray in private. But here's how you do it. And here's what you say, and here's, here's what's important in that. Now he's doing the same thing with judgment. So in the last chapter, he was talking about our public performances, uh, how we're helping others, how we're helping ourselves through prayer, as you pointed out. And now we're getting into judging, judgment. And it's important for us to distinguish between the good and the evil, and these are the tools. So he's, he goes very right into it, right in the next thing. In verse... Seven, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. So, what are we asking for? It comes right on the heels of this statement about judging. Although, the impression is, don't judge unrighteously. Well, you know, being a judge is a pretty serious business. Um... Bishops are judges in Israel. In the law, we have judges. And the judges that I know take their job very seriously. And they try and be as unbiased as possible. They try and follow the directions given to them in the law as they understand it. And so it's not something that is undertaken lightly, especially when it affects the lives of others. But see, that's their role. They've either been elected in some states or they've been selected in some states. And I'm just talking, you know, temporal judges here. Bishops have not self-selected. Certainly, the Lord has called them and appointed them to that role. And the high councils, same thing. But we as individuals have that that role in, in ourselves. So that's what we should be asking for. We should be asking, what should we do in this situation? What shall we do in you know, with this person? Or how do we feel? How should we react to this kind of behavior? And, and those are the kinds of tools that were being handed here in this chapter. There's uh, a verse here that I don't want to overlook here, verse 6, that is, is deceptively simple. It says, don't give what is holy to dogs. They'll only turn and attack you. Don't cast your pearl before swine. They're going to trample it. They won't, um, they won't see its value in essence. This is applicable not just 
to um, to animals, and here the metaphor was was pretty big. The, the point is, be really careful how you talk to other people, and be sure that when you talk to other people about gospel principles, that you don't go beyond their capacity to understand. In in a way, this is sort of a simple way of telling us to use our own version of Jesus' parables. He's going to tell things, and the people who are capable of understanding are going to get it. Well, he's saying, make sure you don't tell people too much about holy things, because they won't grasp it. And if they don't grasp it, that's really bad for them and really bad for you that you um, gave sacred things to people who were not capable. You know, there's another element of this, and that is the sacred promises we make in the temple. And historically, those are there. We, you know, we dealt with it a bit in our book. There's a whole section where, you know, when you're trying to see what the sacred ceremonies were, identify what the sacred ceremonies were of early Christians 2,000 years ago, and they had a covenant not to reveal it, there's a lot of mystery involved in that. But, you know, I think it's important they're not hiding it per se. I mean, as a practical matter, they are, but they are honoring a promise to keep it sacred. And there are sacred practices, there are sacred doctrines, there are sacred sayings, and they're openly spoken of even in the Book of Mormon. Jesus blessed the children, and the things that he blessed them were so sacred they could not be written down. Once again, the Book of Mormon is such a good roadmap for our understanding of these things. But just that one verse, it's a, it's a good thing that you pointed it out because it's, it's, you know, Jesus is saying at the end of that, okay, now we're not going to cast our holy things before those who aren't ready for them. Yeah. So it's a good point. Yeah. We, we have just a couple more things, and um, we're <laughs> closing the end of our... We have in, in verse 13... Uh, this idea about narrow is the gate. And because the gate to hell is wide, there are a lot of people that go through it, but the gate to eternal life is narrow, and the way through it is pretty hard to get to, and there are few people who find it. There's a paraphrase. But but that's that's the gist of it. And that's been a struggle, I know, for some Latter-day Saints because we have this idea that everybody, except those who go to outer darkness, are going to receive some degree of glory that's so amazing that even the worst of us probably, or even the best of us, can hardly comprehend it. It'll be, it'll be amazing. And, and so how can this be reconciled? And I'll tell you how I believe this is to be reconciled, and I've heard this from, this is not my idea, but but I believe it to be true. But, but it's from a secret general authority, right? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't do that, but I know a few people who do. But so the, the idea here is that there are many, many temptations in life, and there are many people, said succinctly, there are a lot of ways to do hellish things, a whole bunch of them. And there are a lot of people who find those ways and even go down those paths. And the way to 
goodness, those are smaller and harder to find and harder to choose. But this isn't a statement. This this is um, this is not a statement that if you go down one of those paths, you can never come back from it. In other words, don't mistake the idea that there that the gate is wide and it's easy to find hell as meaning that you cannot repent from some horrible thing here. Um, that's that's I think that's I think the misconception misconception here. Anybody can come back. God will allow anyone to repent. And this is talking about this life and the people who are going down the right path in the right direction, not who's going to eventually get into heaven. Uh, I've heard that take. Anyway, you may or may not take that to be true, but I find it persuasive. Well, I think I think that to assume that everybody's in there and that you can go back and forth, um, it's essentially the doctrine of Shiram. Everybody will be beaten with a few stripes, and then we'll all be saved in the kingdom of God. And that doctrine is anti-Christ by definition. There's another element where the Book of Mormon, we, we just keep going back to it because, you know, the philosophies of life and philosophies of men are contained in those general instructions to us. And that's one we have here. And there was a, um, in fact, in one of the rabbinical writings that, that is cited to for this passage, uh, there was a case of a Gentile who came before the rabbi, Shammai. He said to him, convert me on the stipulation. You teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot. So he drove him off with the building cubit that he had in his hand, and he came before the rabbi Hillel said, convert me. And Hillel said to him, what is hateful to you, to your fellow, don't do. That's the entirety of the Torah. Everything else is elaboration. Go study. So, uh, obviously, there's a long history of there being two ways. And the right way is certainly the way that you... The, the right way is certainly the way that you follow, but it is narrower. It is more challenging. I mean, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, but... With the weight of the world going on and the people in the great and spacious building laughing at you and pointing at you, and with the confusion, the mist of darkness confusing your very identity today, confusing our very gender, um, those are the kinds of things that we have to see through and we have to focus on and get through that narrow, that narrow way. Let's talk about verses 15 through 20. This is the section about false prophets. And today people wonder about false prophets and what that really means and where do they come from. This is kind of people who are telling you what to do that's not really good advice in today's world, I believe. And, and there, that can be anyone, whether it's – it's not just religious. Um, 
be on guard against those who tell you certain ways to conduct your life might be a good paraphrase for today's life. Be careful for the people who look like they're really trying to help you, but on the inside, they're really trying to harm you because they're giving you really bad advice. We always take this as as strictly religious and false prophets because prophets to us means religion. But everybody back then who was listening to Jesus knew about people in the context of everyday life who were claiming to be prophets and telling people what they should and should not do. And for us, that looks a lot like secular society and people who are giving advice out uh, on the radio and in counseling offices and in all kinds of places, some of which is good, some of which fits into the false prophet e- category. Easy there, Martin. We're on the radio. Uh, the, okay, just, just the, the, that office. That's why I – yeah, that's that's why I feel okay about saying that without hypocrisy because I am sure at times I could fit into that. But And, and you, you have some other great metaphors here about um, – grapes this is great you will you will know them by what they do you can people can say things but you'll know them by what they do um and and he gives some great metaphors here thorn bushes don't bear grapes (laughs) briars don't give you figs a healthy tree bears good fruit a bad tree gives bad fruit a healthy tree can't give you good fruit and so you can't get good from evil. And, and this, is, this is really good. Um, mm-hmm. And so at the very end, he's, he's saying in verse 20, you're going to know these false prophets by what they do. In our world today, you're going to know these false teachers by what they teach. Mm-hmm. Well, and false prophets are the most dangerous because they're giving you misinformation. We're talking about a lot of that in the next hour. That there's a lot of misinformation out about yeah. thing, you know, the Book of Abraham just as one example, and you know they come in sheep's clothing, and that was a practice among soldiers. Josephus reports on it at that time, so it was it was something that they followed. And then, of course, at the end, Jesus is talking about have teaching them as one having authority, and that authority comes from the fruits. I I think you can tell that authority comes from the fruits. But authority has always been, even back, the Gospel of Philip specifically talks about those who received an anointing from the Lord who then anointed the apostles. And that's where they get their authority. So there is a trace of authority in that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back next hour with John Key, Book of Abraham, Terry Hutchison, and Martin Tanner. This is Interpreter Radio. Interpreter Radio. 